0: Hello everyone, I'm Keith McDaniel, and welcome to this edition of My Low-Carb Life. If you listened to our first podcast a couple of weeks ago, you'll know that over the past five years, I have lost more than 130 pounds by adopting a low-carb lifestyle. The goal of this podcast is to tell some of the story uh, and to share some tips that I have found to not only be effective for losing weight, but for keeping it off. Also, in each episode, I'll talk with folks who are experts in the medical field. Uh, they could be an expert in medicine or health or nutrition. Uh, I wanted to reach out to folks that uh, know more about this stuff than I do. So we're going to be talking to, to someone each of these uh, episodes of this podcast. And I also want to share um, some of my favorite low-carb recipes with you. Um, Remember, I'm not a healthcare professional. I'm just sharing what has worked for me so you might be able to develop a plan that works for you. And before you start any uh, kind of diet or exercise program, be sure and talk to your doctor first. The last time we talked, um, I talked about how you should keep a daily food journal in order to accurately keep track of how many carbs you consume. Now, this time around, I want to talk about a couple of things. Uh, One is what I eat for breakfast. Um, I've never been a big breakfast eater. Um, And we've all heard that breakfast is the most important meal of the day. Um, But there are lots of things on a low-carb meal plan that you can eat for breakfast. Eggs are great uh, for breakfast. You can have bacon. You can have meat. You can have a little fruit, uh, the right kind of fruit. Uh, just uh, figure out what you can eat and what you need to get you through the day. Um, I, like I said, I've, not, I've never been a big breakfast eater. So when I go to work, when I go to the office, it, it takes me a little over an hour to get there driving. Uh, I always t- get two slices of cheese and put them in a little Ziploc baggie, throw it in my briefcase. And when I get to work, I'm hungry and I eat two slices of cheese and uh, that kind of keeps me, you know, satisfied until lunchtime. If I'm at home, if it's the weekend, or I'm off uh, for a particular uh, day during the week, oftentimes I will wait until around lunchtime, and then I'll fi- fix me a two-egg omelet with some shredded cheese in it, um, and a couple of uh, cups of uh, of uh, sugar-free Jello, and that's a great meal for me. It's a great low-carb meal for me. Uh, and it kind of satisfies that, that, breakfast, uh, that breakfast urge that I would have. But I have it a little later in the morning. So you just figure out what is the best breakfast for you. Uh, be sure and look at all of the um, carb counts on the foods that you're going to eat. Be sure and write that down in your daily food journal. And uh, next time, maybe we'll talk a little bit about lunch because I have some tricks up my sleeve for, uh, for lunch, especially when you're out and away from home. So we'll talk about lunch next time. What I want to talk about now, though, is um, the mistakes that we can make in low-carb eating. There, there are things that, that are commonly, mistakes that are commonly made when you start a low-carb eating plan. And anytime we try something new, It's important to have the information we need to be successful. And with a low-carb eating plan, we need to know what foods we can eat, how many carbs per day we should have, and what are some of the things that might come up that would present us a challenge. It's also important to learn that we need to look out um, for those things that will jeopardize our success. That's why I wanted to list just a few mistakes that many folks make when going on a low-carb eating plan. Each of these individually could derail your plan uh, and your success and eventually cause you to be so discouraged that you just kind of give up and go back to the way things were before. And we don't want that. Um, So first of all, the first mistake that most people make is eating too many carbs. Now, we talked last time about the right amount of carbs for you to be able to get into ketosis where your body burns the fat you've got stored instead of the carbohydrates that you're eating for energy. Um, on, on an, an average person on an American diet will consume between 250 and 350 carbs per day. Now, when you go on a low-carb diet, um, not a keto diet, but a low-carb diet, your carb count will be between 50 and and about 150 carbs per day, and if you really want to get into true ketosis, you'll drop below 50 carbs per day. Uh, I usually try to stay around 50 carbs a day. I don't want to go deep into ketosis, but I want it to be enough to where I can continue losing. So you have to be very careful and diligent in counting your carbs um, and your net carbs because if you don't, uh, if you don't drop down to where your body will react from lowering your carb count, then you won't lose weight. So take my suggestion and create that food journal in which you write down everything you eat and record the carb value next to each food. Uh, that way you can kind of know throughout the day how many carbs you've eaten, how many you've got left. This, I guarantee you this will be a huge help uh, for you to maintain your, your, your carb count. Second mistake people make, eating too much protein. Now, protein is really good uh, for you on a low-carb diet. Um, not only does it provide essential nutrients, but it also creates a feeling of fitness, I mean, of fullness and satisfaction. Um, it helps increase the fat burning that you need when you're going uh, on a low-carb eating plan. That's what you want, is you want your body to burn fat instead of carbs. Um, However, it's very easy to have too much protein, and that will kind of derail your progress. When you eat more protein than your body needs, some of the amino acids in protein can be turned into glucose, and this will prevent your body from going into ketosis. Um, Most experts recommend that a low-carb diet should be high in fat and moderate in protein. And a good range of how much protein you should have is about seven to nine grams, so say average eight grams of protein for every 10 pounds of your body weight. So you can kind of figure that out based upon what you weigh as to how much protein you should have. Another mistake, and it kind of goes along with protein, is not eating enough fat. Um, You know, all of our lives we've been told that Fat is not good for us. Um, It turns out, however, that the right amount of fat and the right kind of fat is very, very beneficial to a low-carb diet. Um, Some people might think that cutting the fat out of a low-carb diet would make it even healthier. Well, it it doesn't work that way. Um, Keeping a healthy level of fat in your diet will help you feel less hunger and will make sure you're getting the right kind of nutrition. Be sure to choose healthy fats, such as monosaturated fats and omega-3 fats, and try to stay away from trans fats. A good range for those on a low-carb eating plan is about 70% of your total calories should be fat. I personally try to stay at around 100 to 125 grams of fat per day. Actually, I could probably go up even higher, but I try to stay right there. Um, Just remember, when you choose fatty meats, be sure to count that. Uh, as part of your fat uh, intake as well another mistake that we make is not getting enough sodium and electrolytes now one of the main benefits of going on a low-carb eating plan is the reduction of insulin in your system insulin not only tells your body to store fat but it also tells your kidneys to retain sodium and when you go on a low-carb eating plan your insulin levels go down, and your body starts getting rid of the sodium. Also, your body will start getting rid of water as well. And that's the reason that uh, not too long after people go on a low-carb eating plan, uh, they kind of um, get rid of that bloating that they may have felt previously. But not having enough sodium in your body can cause all kinds of problems, such as lightheadedness and fatigue and headaches. In addition, not having other essential electrolytes can cause problems such as leg and foot cramps, which I have had. Um, but I found two easy ways to add sodium to my low-carb eating plan. The first is very simple. Just add salt to your to your food. I have never been one to really use salt very much. All my life, um, other people all around me, they'll take the salt shaker and put it on their food. I just never really cared that much for it. But it's, it's good when you're on a low-carb plan to replace some of the sodium that you're losing. Um, and I have discovered why other people salted their food for those many years. It makes food taste better. So uh, I don't use a lot, but I use more salt than I used to. Um, a second way to, to get sodium and electrolytes back into your system is what you want to do is to um, is to drink products that contain electrolytes. Um, when I, as I mentioned earlier, um, the first few months of uh, me going on my low-carb diet, I would wake up in the middle of the night with terrible foot cramps. And I thought, well, I'm not getting enough potassium. That's what you typically think. And I went to my doctor and talked to him about it. And he said, you know, he says, Whenever people go on a diet, they shed a lot of water, they shed a lot of sodium, and your electrolytes get screwed up. So, he suggested that I drink a Gatorade every day to replace some of those electrolytes. Well, I went to the store, and they did not have a sugar-free Gatorade at that point. This was five years ago. But I did find a Powerade Zero, which has no carbs in it, no sugar in it, and it had the electrolytes. So... For, for years now, I've drinking at least one bottle of PowerAge Zero every day, and that really has helped with my foot cramps. Um, now, since then, recently, uh, I have discovered that they sell bottled water that has the electrolytes in it as well. So just as long as you're getting enough fluid and uh, you're replacing those that sodium and electrolytes, that's what you need to do. Another thing that is a mistake people make is not eating a well-balanced diet. Now, I always refer to my low-carb eating plan as the meat, eggs, and cheese diet because you eat so much meat, eggs, and cheese, but it's really much more than that. Um, Although those are all important, uh, I eat them just about every day, it's important to add other foods to your diet like vegetables, some vegetables, some fruits, some snacks you can find low-carb sweets Uh, they even have some low-carb bread or crackers now available Um, and just by eating certain foods that are different um, you're giving yourself some variety so you don't fall into this mental state of deprivation uh, that causes you to quit and to give up because let's be honest Dieting is not fun. It's not easy. It can be boring. So you have to kind of figure a way to kind of, you know, spice it up and change things up a little bit. So uh, so you're still accomplishing the goals that you want you want to do, uh, but you're having some variety in your in your meals. Um, the, there there are hundreds and hundreds. There are probably thousands of resources online where you can go and get the carb count. Of foods, Um, you know, and that's what that's what you need to do. That's what I did, and you just figure out what foods you can eat and what foods you can't, and just add those to your add those to your meal plan for the week. And finally, the last mistake that most people make when going on a low carb diet is quitting too soon. What happens is, you you aren't accomplishing what you want to accomplish as fast as you would like to accomplish it. Uh, what you have to do is you have to allow your body to adjust. You have to allow your body to start burning the fat instead of the carbs. And let's be honest, uh, whenever you change what you eat, change what you do, it's not always an easy experience. Um, like I said, changes to your body, uh, your body's trying to figure out how to adapt to those changes. Um, many people, especially the first week or so, maybe two weeks of going on a low-carb diet, especially if they get into ketosis, get something that's called the keto flu, and that is where your body's adjusting. And sometimes it makes you feel like you have the flu, um, and and they say, "Well, this is not working," and they quit. And they never have the uh, your body never has uh, an opportunity to kind of resolve itself. But trust me, it will. After a week, maybe two weeks, uh, you'll start feeling better. Uh, You'll start feeling less bloated. Uh, That those flu symptoms will go away uh, for the most part, and you can continue on and be able to achieve what you want to achieve. So, so don't quit too soon. So, those are a few things that. that uh, you can look out for and try not to make those mistakes. Um, I want to spend most of the podcast today talking uh, with a a medical expert um, about a topic that I think is very important. It is about what happens to your body when you carry too much weight. Now, you know, it could be 20 pounds, it could be 200 extra pounds, you know, but but when you carry extra weight, it does affect your body. So uh, Tara Fuston-Bankus is a physician assistant that I know, and she works in pathology. Um, And so since she works in pathology, she sees firsthand the effects of carrying too much weight. So let's spend the next few minutes listening to my interview that I did with Tara Fuston-Bankus. Tell us a little bit about about who you are and your background and and what you do.
1: So um, I'm a native East Tennesseean and um, lived in Knoxville for, gosh, 17 years now, I think. And um, I am a PA in pathology. So what that means is I do the surgical dissection of anything that comes out of someone during surgery. It can be your fingernails that you get taken off to see if there's fungus. It can be a leg, a lung, looking for tumor, anything. If you have it taken off of you, then there is a person that actually measures it, looks at it, talks about it, describes it, cuts it up, finds the important parts. And whatever I put through as tissue gets processed and made into glass slides that are looked at under a microscope. So, um, and I'm also qualified to do autopsies, but that's a very small part of a PA's job in pathology. So I, okay. I look at body parts all day and oh. <laughs> look at what's wrong with them.
0: my goodness. That's uh well, that, it, I guess it takes a, a unique person to be able to do that.
1: So. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's not for everyone, but it's, I think no two days are the same and it's supremely interesting to seeing, um, the disease processes in the human body. Um, I mean, it might not be interesting for everyone, but for, for my husband and I, it's fascinating. He actually does the same thing at Park West Hospital. I'm a Methodist in Oak Ridge and he is at Park West. So we oh, have is that right. Yeah. So we have some interesting dinner conversations sometimes.
0: <laughs> I bet I bet. My goodness. My goodness. Now I know he's a he's a veteran too, isn't he?
1: He wow. is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah.
0: He um uh, yeah. he, he was um uh, did he did he do that? Uh, while he was in, in in service, or was this something that came afterwards?
1: Um, he was actually a combat medic whenever um, he served overseas in Iraq for a year, um, and he was in pathology prior to that. Um, he has more of a veterinary background, which is interesting, um, and I do some of that on the side, too, some veterinary pathology as well with um animal specimens. But um, he and I met whenever we both were working at Fort Sanders Regional downtown when, when we were both PAs there. So
0: Oh, okay. All right. Well, yeah. good. Well, good. Well, let's talk a little bit about one of the things that it was interesting when I was talking to you about doing this interview is I thought it would be really unique. You know, I, I said, maybe, you know, maybe I could have a doctor that would come on and talk about, you know, this. And then once I found out what you did, I said, that would really be a unique perspective because you said you normally don't meet the patient, but based upon the work that you do, you can tell a lot about their lifestyle and their history and things such as that. Tell me a little bit about about how you do that.
1: So any specimen that I get, you know, it is, that's correct. I do not see the patient in person um, because I just get their specimens and I do get a limited history about them, um, you know, in paper format or online, um, because sometimes I, that is pertinent information for me to be able to handle the specimen correctly, mm-hmm. depending on what's wrong with the specimen or what I'm looking for. But there's some that I immediately can tell, um, like say if I get a kidney and like a nephrectomy specimen and um, it's been taken out for cancer, well, if I pull it out of a five gallon bucket and it's encased in fat where it's, you know, over a foot long, then that's, it's not normal for a kidney to have that much perinephric fat. Like you can tell that, um, you know, this is a person that is clearly overweight or some of the specimens are just there is a direct correlation between why we're getting those specimens and obesity in general um joint resections are one of those um to be clear not not everything has it you know not everything is a causative relationship because of not maintaining a healthy weight but a very large portion of what I get, you know, I I can tell. So with, say, joint resections, your joints can only handle so much weight and wear and tear over years and years. Um, We're just not made to carry around tons of extra weight All the time. And as a result, that the articular cartilage on your joints wears down and um, that's degenerative joint disease. So over time, when that cartilage wears away, you've got, you know, bone on bone rubbing instead of a nice smooth surface of cartilage rubbing. And then the joint has to be replaced. And that's, you know, you hear about people having their knees and hips and ankles replaced, I think, fairly often. But it's a major surgery. I mean, it's a big surgery that people go through or you know, like peripheral vascular disease. Mm -hmm. Um, I was talking this morning about uh, we were... And tell me,
0: what is is peripheral vascular disease?
1: It's where the insides of your arteries, um, the insides of your vessels are getting a buildup of plaque over time. So they're narrowing, like the inside periphery is narrowing. And so you have decreased blood flow. There's also um, that plaque can harden and become calcific, Um, you know, you hear like hard hardening of the arteries. Um well if you have decreased blood flow, um which is what you see often in a lot of type two diabetics, you you can't get blood flow all the way down to the extremities as much as it should be. You know, you you want good blood flow going all the way to your toes. And um that's one reason that you hear about people that have peripheral artery disease or peripheral vascular disease. Um, If they get a wound on their foot, it's very slow to heal. Mm
0: -hmm. And
1: you know, often because they may already have type two diabetes, but it's just because you're not getting that good blood flow all the way down to your extremities because your body naturally wants to like keep it around your internal organs, you know, and just can't get all the way down through there. So actually a large portion of the legs, the amputations that we receive, are because of that. It could be from the peripheral artery disease, um, which is, has a direct correlation with, um, obesity. Uh-huh. Uh, it can be from that where you would end up just getting a cold leg and no blood flow or because someone has had some type of wound that's non healing and, it ends up becoming infected once infection reaches that bone and causes osteomyelitis, which is like an infection of the bone. Yeah. It's very, very difficult to get that to go away. And so oftentimes it will turn gangrenous and, and there's not a lot of choices besides amputation. So, um,
0: and that's and the reason that's, that I and I guess that's the reason a lot of people who you, you hear about a lot of people who have diabetes who have to have amputations.
1: Yeah, it's, because yeah, that's exactly why. And I mean, it's heartbreaking um, because you know once once you get to once you get to that point, you know there, sometimes there's just nothing else you can do, and you know a limb, and that is a huge life-altering surgery. You know, you're mm-hmm. you're your forever, and so um, that that's just one of the many examples. You know, that, let, that
0: let me let me ask you this: I I would assume that uh, not only obesity would contribute to that, but also someone who smoked that would contribute to that as well, wouldn't it?
1: Oh yes. Um and the smoking thing is oh yeah, we could talk about that all day long. But and well but that's also it can create the perfect storm. You know, so many heart problems, so many pulmonary problems, you know, people with lung issues, you know, it's it's not just because they're not maintaining a healthy weight. You know, they right. have other contributing factors. You know, they may live a more sedentary lifestyle
0: mm-hmm. or
1: or they may be a smoker. And, you know, I think everyone has heard and, and knows that you have very slow wound healing, you know, if you're smoking. And so they kind of work hand in hand. It um it's really difficult if if you have a lot of comorbidities going on and then you get just something like a, a simple wound on your foot or your toe yeah. or something, you know, it it can snowball very quickly. But yes, smoking is a huge contributor to many of the surgeries that I get as well.
0: What are what are some of the other things? What are what are some of the other ways that obesity contribute to poor health in in some of the the things that you see?
1: Um probably the most common thing, one of the most common specimens that I get are gallbladders. And most of the gallbladders that I get, you know, you hear about people that have a gallbladder attack. Yeah. Well, it, it goes back to eating habits primarily, you know, because if you're eating um, a high fat, um,
0: greasy, fried fat, food, yeah, yeah.
1: Know that, um, which is so really amazing at first when you're eating it, but just yeah. not have it too often. Um. That is, you know, you're, it just can't properly function. You know, it, it can't, that it gives it an overload. And so it starts not working properly like it should. And that can lead to um, cholecystitis, which is like an inflammation. Um, people get gallstones. There's, um, there is a link between um, an unhealthy weight and unhealthy diet habits and getting gallstones. Well, if your gallbladder is packed with gallstones, it can't eject that bile that you need for digestion. And so um, that's something that I see every single day. I probably get at least three gallbladders a day. Is that and, right? Wow. Yes. And I mean, now to be fair, in all of these things that we're talking about, um, not all of them are, are caused by you know unhealthy lifestyle. There's always genetics that can come into play. Um, and then some people, they just have a non-functioning gallbladder and, and they're perfectly healthy. But the majority are not that way. Um, another example would be anytime I get a placenta from a new mother that has had a baby, it's because there is something that has happened or something that's going on with either the baby or the mother. And one of the reasons that I get placentas is because of maternal gestational diabetes, Mm. um, because that can, you know, negatively affect a fetus. And it can also, um, it can make the labor and delivery process much different. You know, you can have preterm labor, things like that. Um, But oftentimes I'll get a placenta and that, that's what they put as the reason that they've sent it down to me. And um, there are people that get digest or gestational diabetes just from, luck and mm-hmm. genetics, but a lot of them it's a direct correlation you know between um an unhealthy maternal weight during or before pregnancy
0: yeah um,
1: i mean that can complicate pregnancy in a lot of other ways too if you already are maintaining a very unhealthy weight to begin yeah. with
0: yeah what about what about heart and lungs
1: um hearts in particular you can get their is a link between obesity and like valve stenosis where um, like your aortic valve or it's just not, um, it kind of gets really firm and really rubbery. And instead of being pliable and opening and closing like it should, it just doesn't work the way that it should. And it has to be replaced. Like valve replacement is right thing that you hear about all the time, but at the end of the day, that's, that's major, that's heart surgery, you know, that's, that's, a deal. and, um, and those valves don't usually last forever. The replacement ones, you know, oftentimes, you know, I'll have a second replacement from someone that's had it, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, and, and that's a surgery every time. Um, lung issues, just basic, you know, if you're really overweight, and it is very difficult for you to perform basic tasks and activities, then that's putting a strain on your cardiovascular and pulmonary system already, you know, Mm -hmm. say it is very difficult for you to walk to the mailbox and back just because you're so overweight. Well, that's making all of your system, you know, your heart and your lungs work harder than they should have to. Um, there's, there are actually a number of cancers that, um, you know, are linked. I I can't say that it's causative, but, you know, I get, you know, a lot of, a lot of colon cancers are believed to be associated with, you know, a fatty or unhealthy diet, um, that someone has had for years and years and years. And I, I can't provide you with the actual research that this is just something that, you know, you often hear about, and I know that there is this correlation um, because we see a lot of colon cancers. And I think Uh. with what we're putting in our bodies and what we're eating.
0: And that's kind of like the whole, you know, if it looks like a duck, if it walks like a duck, you know, most most likely it's a duck, you know? Yeah, yeah. So
1: um, it would take someone that's better at um, statistics and knows more about that to be able to provide you like good hard numbers. But that's something that we see really often. And it's known that, you know, there's a lot of, like, you know, like kidney cancer being associated with smoking and being mm-hmm. overweight, but then you've also got people that have kidney cancer that, um, it's just unfortunate luck of the draw.
0: Yeah, sure. Yeah. Sure. You know, it's interesting and I don't want to get too personal, but, um, you know, I, I was having some issues and I ended, ended up having to go this, was a, oh gosh, two or three years ago, maybe more, uh, to the, um, uh, to the, uh, uh urologist. And of course, they took a sample and he came back and he said, do you normally have blood in your urine? And I said, well, no, not that I know of. And he said, well, you have a little little trace of it. And he said, because uh, I had smoked for so many years, he said, uh, you know, smokers have like three times the chance of, of uh, cancer. Than yeah. you know uh, in in that you know in that field than than just a, a normal person so so um, yeah I mean it's 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 all related tell me what about what about the relationship between obesity and stroke I mean I, I would imagine you know you you talked about you know your your blood flow not being as 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 true and as good as it could be and i would imagine that's the same way in the brain.
1: Yeah, a stroke is something that i don't i don't see that's something that does not generate a specimen for me. Oh, okay. So to be you know very open and honest that you know i i have limited knowledge of that but i can tell you, you know risk factor for stroke is you know if you are obese, if you smoke, if you already have heart problems mm-hmm. then that can create the perfect storm for a stroke. If you, you know, are living a sedentary lifestyle, um, that's actually something that, um, when I, when we were expecting my daughter, um, my husband's mother, she had had a heart attack and she had been a smoker at that time, you know, lived a more sedentary lifestyle. And, um, wasn't incredibly overweight, but it was enough to kind of create this perfect storm. And she ended up um, having a massive stroke. Oh. And um, she uh, ended up with kidney problems after that. And um, she ended up dying within, I guess, four or five years after that. And so um, it's unfortunate that, you know, looking back, you think, well, gosh, yeah, you know, she was a smoker and you know, she yeah. she had these heart problems and, and the heart problems were likely caused that because of lifestyle. And yeah. it, I think that people don't think about, you know, you think about an unhealthy lifestyle, like, well, it's not like I'm, you know, shooting up drugs or laying on the couch <laughs> all along, but yeah. sometimes it's just that, you know, you're not moving enough and uh-huh. you're not quite healthy enough. And I mean, it's hard. I like chocolate cake as much as the next person does, you know, but Just try to do it in moderation, but going back to stroke, I mean, yes, there's, um, that is a known risk factor for stroke. And, um, unfortunately, you know, we see that a lot, um, particularly in the Southern states.
0: Let me, let me ask you this, because we talked about the, the issues that can be caused by obesity and, and other unhealthy, you know, hobbies that, you know, a person may have um how much and i want you to talk a little bit about exercise because i know you and your husband you're you're you know uh, i don't know you well enough but i would imagine you're fanatical about physical fitness and exercise um but uh how much of the damage that has been done to a person's body can be reversed or improved by maintaining a healthy diet and adding exercise
1: an extreme amount can be changed like that's one of those things like stopping smoking you know they there are all these graphs about how you know if you stop smoking this is what happens with your body you know after you haven't smoked for 24 hours and with with weight loss um it it does take a little bit longer but those are changes that um, they it's a slow process, but you can undo a lot of um, what has been done already. Now, mm-hmm. as far as, you know, I'm not sure about, you know, if you already are suffering first, if it has gotten to where you already have peripheral vascular disease, you know, it, it would take a vascular person to maybe tell us right. some more about that. Sure. But. Sure um, you're automatically taking so many risk factors. Um, and just this morning I I was watching a TV program and, um, I think it was Dr. Sanjay Gupta was on there talking about the link between, um, healthy eating and maintaining a more active lifestyle and decreasing your Alzheimer's risk and Mm -hmm. risk of dementia. And there, you know, he mentioned that, you know, everybody has to start somewhere. And yes, I we we're kind of crazy, like activity, workout freaks. Um, you know, I think part of it, I've always been an active person, but I did not really get into caring so much about it until probably my early thirties. Um, because when you're young, it's easy to say, well, oh, I can eat 10 candy bars a day and it sure. doesn't really matter. And um, But I think working in the fields that we are in, that made me want to not be one of the specimens that I'm cutting on. You know, I, I want to have my gallbladder taken out and, um, you know, you want to decrease as much of that risk as you can. And so I think that anything that you can do to get your heart rate up, anything that you can do to eat a little bit healthier. I'm vegetarian. Um, my husband is not, but we both, um, During the week, our system is kind of, we are doing something every single day, just about. Um, Mm. That can mean going to the gym. It can mean, you know, for me, going to a yoga class or going on a run or doing a hike. Um, But part of that is not everybody has to do every day. But for us, that's, that's just kind of what we like to do. But during the week, we eat really, really healthy. And then on the weekends, we we kind of eat what we want but in moderation because Mm -hmm. for us, it's not about, you know, working ourselves out so much that we're exhausted and it's not about going on a diet. It's, it's a lifestyle that we, you know, kind of adapted to, to maintain and, and stay healthy. Like when I first got into the field of pathology years, a hundred years ago, um, I used to lay in the tanning bed and, Mm. um, it's terrible. It's awful. You know, all through college. But when, you know, when you're young and you're dumb and you think, no, that's not going to happen to me. But then I started cutting up a lot of skin cancer cases, particularly in younger and younger people. And so immediately I stopped going and getting, you know, going and going to the tanning bed. I would get a and I stopped actively seeking out the sun. And so I think that over the years, specimens that I see, they have, um, made me more aware of, you know, how I'm living. It's more of a reminder because you're seeing it every single day. You know, it's a healthy weight is not just about an outward appearance. You know, when I'm seeing things on my cutting board that, you know, is clearly caused by somebody that has some unhealthy habits, it makes me want to do a little bit better because I don't want my leg to end up on somebody else's sure. cutting board. You
0: know? you know, and, and the reason that I asked that question, that question, excuse me, about what can be reversed is my own personal experience. When I started, when I found myself at my heaviest almost five years ago at 292 pounds, um, I had just done a show at the Oak Ridge Playhouse. Um and I uh, I was having trouble with my knees. I mean, I had to go up some stairs. And I had to have help going up the stairs quickly to be able to make my entrance. Um, and I'd never had knee trouble before. Um, and and not too long after that, maybe a year or so later than that, um, I started having hip pain. And I went to my ortho doctor and he took an x-ray and he said, well, he said, look at all that arthritis in your hip. He says, you're going to have, he says, you you got about two years before you're going to come back begging me for an artificial hip. And I'm sure that those things do not heal themselves. But um, I think because I lost this 130 pounds that I have lost, that it reduced the strain both on my knees and my hips. Now, my son and I, we went on a road trip this summer. I had to go to South Carolina to shoot a, a video, and it was about a nine hour drive. And I knew that I would, my, after two or three hours in the car, my hips would hurt. But um, normally, my knees and my hips, you know, they, they, they hurt about as much as they should for a 63 year old, but not like they did five years ago. I mean, not nearly like they did five years ago. And I've avoided having to have, you know, a hip replacement. Um, and, you know, and I don't feel like I'm to the point where I really need it at this point. So I guess my story is that I was able to make changes in the amount of excess weight that I carried. And that reduced much of the strain on my body. Not Absolutely.
1: So like that, that was a great point that you made that, yes, you cannot put that cartilage, there is no way to just grow that cartilage back, you know, once it's gone. However, it doesn't just go from being there to being gone. You know, it's, it's a slow wearing away. And it was an excellent point that you made, you know, it, you taking away that much weight that reduces so much pressure and impact on your joints. So many people have far less back pain, um, you know, you, you hear about these success stories of people that have lost a significant amount of weight. And, you know, one of the things that they talk about is just being able to breathe more deeply and just feeling like they have more energy Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, because you're not carrying all of this extra weight around and just being able to, you know, if like a grandparent getting to chase after you know a kid or mm-hmm. um you know being able to just walk around Dollywood and not have to stop and rest or stop to catch your breath or yeah. you know there's because yes some of it it's you can't
0: you put can't it reverse back. it you can't right. put it back but right
1: but as far as you know your heart health and your lung health, just being, you know, cardiovascularly fit. And part of that, you know, you do, you should be getting some exercise, sure, of uh, course. but you can't, I've learned and I have tried, I've tried so hard, but the whole you can't out exercise a bad diet thing. Yeah. That is true because I have tried. <laughs> it's, <laughs>
0: right. it's
1: impossible. You can't eat cakes and candy bars and then just hit the gym for an hour. Um, yeah because I've attempted that many times. And so it does go hand in hand, but there are, there are so many things that you can reverse and you can get back. Um, but like you said, part of it is just taking all that pressure off of your joints. Well, that same thing happens to your organs, mm-hmm. you know, you're about of fat itself as being right underneath your skin. But no, like you, you know, some of your organs are encased in it, you know, as as a protective thing, you know, your kidneys are supposed to have fat around them. Um, but a lot of it, you know, can be helped and improved if not.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's a, you know, and, and I've, and I've told this story on online here recently. Um, you know, and this has been, this has been a horrible year for so many people with the pandemic and COVID-19. And, um, you know, I got it. I I did everything I was supposed to do. I wore my mask. I stayed away from people, but, uh, December 7th, I started feeling bad. And the next day I got a test and I came back positive. And, um, fortunately it, it ran its course over about a couple of weeks, but, and I did have some breathing issues. Um, but, not so much that I ended up having to go to the hospital. And I tell people, I said, had I been at the weight I was five years ago, there's no telling how that would have turned out. Oh yeah. I'm I'm not, I'm not sure that I'd be here right now talking to you. had, Had I not lost that 130 pounds. And I tell people, I say, you know, um, I don't know why I I was able at the age of 58 to summon the strength to do something that I hadn't been trying to do my whole life and lose weight. um, Unless there was someone smarter than me who gave me that strength, you know, that's, that's kind of the way I feel about it. So, um, so you never know what's going to happen. What's going to be the result of you changing your life and changing your lifestyle and and losing weight and and getting healthy so
1: oh yeah like the whole the the covid thing like you know you you are talking about if you did have all of that weight well your body would have to be working harder to just perform basic breathing mm-hmm. instead of what virus off um so i do think that that's true and um i will say watching you go through this process for for years it has been incredible. It has been an incredible transformation. Um, and I have really enjoyed watching along the way because a lot of people, I think it's easy to, you know, when things get hard or when things plateau and you're not really seeing or feeling a difference anymore to just kind of give up. But it's been really encouraging and inspiring to watch you go through this whole process because you've done so well. Because when we met, it probably was like, I mean, it's
0: been years ago 6 or 7 years ago probably
1: that, i mean you you truly were a different person you looked like a completely different person and so um I think it's awesome that you've been able to you know to maintain this lifestyle and not hate it and just you know give well, up you've made a lifestyle so well, thank you
0: i you know i i kind of look at it as because i did this about 15 years ago I lost some weight by going on a low carb diet. And I know there's lots of, there's lots of opinions about low carb diets. And um, I, and and I went on, but once I went off of it, I just gained all the, all the weight back and, you know, and I couldn't maintain it. So when I started this time, I said, I'm going to try to do things a little bit smarter in the fact that I'm going to eat things that are healthy. Um, I may, I may eliminate um, I may eliminate some, some foods, but not completely from my diet. Um, and I'm going to treat this like I've got diabetes, that this is something I'm going to have to do to some, one degree or the other for the rest of my life um, because I don't want that weight to come back. And I think that's how I've been able to be successful. You know, there was a couple of years ago during the holidays that, Um, you know, I I didn't really go off my diet, but I ate things that I shouldn't have. And I gained about 20 pounds over the course of about three months, you know, and I said, ooh, I I can't let that happen. So, so, you know, I kind of recommitted myself to it. And uh, uh, I would have never thought in a million years that I would be the host of a podcast about being healthy about losing weight, <laughs> never in a million years but it's
1: wow, really good right I mean yeah, yeah it's, it's
0: great it's I'm i am surprised and pleased and and uh so um so anyway uh Tara thank you so much for for being with me today and and shedding some of your um uh, some of your knowledge about what it means to to uh, the benefits of of living a healthy lifestyle and uh, and of and of uh, you know maintaining a healthy weight. Thank you so much.
1: Yeah, well, thank you for having me. It's you know it's been a pleasure.
0: Thanks, Tara. That was fantastic. I appreciate it. Um, before we close the podcast today, I want to share a low carb recipe that I recently discovered. As a matter of fact, I made this uh, for Thanksgiving and for Christmas for our family meals this year, and it was delicious for me. It was low carb, delicious. And the rest of my family even liked it, which is kind of unusual. Um, but uh, I want to share that with you. It is what I call faux tato salad. That's right, faux as in false potato uh, salad. It's potato salad made without potatoes. It is made with cauliflower instead of potatoes. You may think, cauliflower, oh, that tastes terrible. Trust me. It's delicious once you get everything mixed in there, um, and I'm going to be talking more about cauliflower later on because it is a it is a key vegetable for a low carb diet, and there's lots of things you can do with it. But I want to tell you how I made it. It's fairly simple. The first thing that I do is I as I use a a a bag of frozen cauliflower. I don't get fresh cauliflower. I just take a bag of frozen cauliflower that I can. Um, That I can steam in the microwave. And I do that. I put it in there uh, for however long it says to to, uh, put it in there on the bag. Once that's done, um, I will put it in the refrigerator and let it cool off. Because I like when I make this potato salad, it seems to work better if it's if it's cooled off and not so hot. Uh, Okay? So once it's cooled off, I'll take it out and I'll break the pieces up. If they're big pieces, I'll break them up into into smaller pieces. Uh, you know, maybe a, a half inch, three quarters of an inch diameter or something like that. And then with that, I put it. I usually put it in a Tupperware, a quart Tupperware dish or something like that that I can store it in, and just mix it in there. Is to the cauliflower, I will add a half a cup of mayonnaise, two tablespoons of yellow mustard a half of a small onion that I have diced up, two stalks of celery that I've diced, four to six eggs, hard-boiled, that have been chopped up, and some salt and pepper. Okay? So I mix that all together, mix it really good in my, in my uh, Tupperware, my container, the bowl, whatever I put it in. And then I take a little paprika... And sprinkle it on top, you know, like your grandmother used to do with the potato salad uh, that she made. Um, and then I put a lid on it, snap a lid on it, put it in the refrigerator, and let it cool. And that's it. I mean, it's really very good. Uh, you you would, it's a it's a, it's not potato salad, but it is a great great substitute for potato salad. And none of those ingredients have a lot of carbs in them. The eggs make it better. You can use fewer or more eggs according to your taste. But, uh, but the, the recipe that I just told you, uh, it serves four. If you serve four from it, that's four servings. It's not quite a quart, but it's almost a quart uh, container full. The net carbs in each serving is 10, and it has 220 calories, 15 grams of protein, and nine grams of fat so that is a great side dish you could add uh, some you know baked chicken to it a piece of steak some meat and that would make a delicious meal it really would so I hope you can try that a faux potato salad it's delicious um, hey folks thanks for listening to this edition of my low carb life uh, I want to once again thank my guest Tara Fusenbankus for sharing her expertise with us. Um, We'll be back in February with a new episode. Uh, I'm trying to do two of these per month, and this is the second one for January. But uh, the first one in February that I come back with is I'm going to be talking with an exercise scientist. Now, this is someone who, who specializes in the science of exercise, and I want to ask him about the best way to start and maintain an effective exercise program for someone who is older, an adult, or maybe even a, a senior adult, uh, and for people who they have some weight to lose um, and they are not in the best shape. So, how do you start and you maintain a program that will help? That will you know supplement what you're doing with your low carb you know diet. So uh, you'll you'll want to be sure and, and check that out. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast where you're listening. It's available on most platforms, and you can always find it at anchor.fm slash lowcarbkeith. Also, if you have questions or topics you'd like for me to address on the podcast, or if you have a success story of your own about low-carb living, I would love to hear from you. You can email me at lowcarbkeith at gmail.com. That's one word, lowcarbkeith at gmail.com. I hope you will continue to join me in this journey, and hopefully you will find something in these stories that will inspire, motivate, and educate you to do something to improve your health and your quality of life for the rest of your life. Till next time, this is Keith McDaniel, living my low-carb life.